people at swimming pools are absolute monsters. Welcome to Groovy Movies. My name is Lily Austin. And my name's James Brailsford. Hello. Hello. It is the season finale. Again, <laughs> season three. Season three finale. And also, this is Christmas week for our listeners. Are you having a yeah. good time? How's it with the family? Have there been any arguments? Have night and day merged into one? Has not drinking become not a thing and it's just one thing where you're a bit drunk, or a little bit hungover? What's happening? As in you're just... It's no longer about having a drink. It's about having a sober moment kind of thing. You're, you're Possibly. More, you're, your body is more alcohol than, than water. You are just a walking liqueur. And, you know, <laughs> it, it's, just, it's just this fuzzy haze of, like, overindulgence. You know what? I'm already feeling it. We're recording this the week before Christmas, and I'm, I'm actually <laughs> quite hungover for no reason. I was just decorating the tree and watching The Crown last night. I shouldn't have drunk so much. But, you know... It's that time of year, baby. My brother visited the other day and brought a hamper for me, so I just was tucking into that bad boy. And I, I think it's meant to last much longer than it actually has. So, <laughs> Oh, a hamper. That's so nice. I love that. Yes, delicious. <laughs> it's, very, mm. it's very grown up. Well, I'm a, I'm a grown up kind of person, Lily. I don't know if you've figured that out yet from the uh, hours and hours of times we've spent talking to each other. I'm a serious adult. You're very much an adult. I was at the swimming pool the <laughs> other day and this little boy almost swam into me and his teacher was like, you almost hit that woman. And I was like, oh my God, am I a woman? You are a woman. <laughs> I guess I must you be are... a woman. This is alarming. You're a serious, a serious woman who doesn't like kids hitting into them in the pool. <laughs> you obviously look like you've got the potential to kick off, I... so she was placating you. People at swimming pools are absolute monsters. I've been told off so many times. Anyway, this, okay, look, we're digressing. Should we get? <laughs> should we stick to what we're doing? Sorry, yes, we don't usually do this kind of chit-chat stuff. We normally get right into the meat of it. Sorry, listeners, I know you're probably chomping at the bit there, like, oh, enough of this getting just small talk nonsense. <laughs> yeah, 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 you're right. Okay, sorry, guys, sorry, guys. Yeah, we're not that kind of podcast. We know what you're here <laughs> for, and we're going to give it to you. So, for the season finale, <laughs> as it's post-Christmas, we're in that pre-New Year, post-Christmas Never region, if you will. So we are going to discuss Bridget Jones' Diary because I feel like that is the ultimate film for this time of year. It's about New the, Year's resolutions, finding your... Making plans for the year ahead. Yeah, m intentions. And it's bookended. It starts and ends at Christmas. And it's also, I have to tell you, probably top three favorite films and definitely the film I've watched the most in my life. Wow. So where does uh, Practical Magic, for example, rank in that? Is that in the top three or is that top 10? Oh, God. It's, James, it's like hard. This is like swirling <laughs> all around in the same Oh, yeah, of... yeah. I'm, I'm the same. It's, yeah. it's hard. But you know, if, you, if you're going to make that claim for Bridget Jones, I'm just curious as to, to calibrate myself where in, in relation, at least, if not in like specific, but how many steps up or down is Practical Magic? You know what it is, right? It's that just like how you have 2001 is in a separate category to other films, uh -huh. your favorite film. Yeah. For me, these sorts of movies like Practical Magic and Bridget Jones, basically films that are considered like chick films and a bit shit. But mm. in general, like they, they're not given a lot of, they're not taken very seriously they're they're... in a way. Yeah. Um, they occupy a different space in my film brain, I guess, because they're the films that, I just always am up for watching and always enjoy. They are my superhero films 
Well, ah, I see. You find those an easy watch. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're like my Christopher Nolan Dark Knight trilogy. Yeah. I'll slip on. They're just an easy watch. I enjoy watching them. They hit all the bits of my brain that I just I enjoy. And I know it's not going to disappoint. It, it always delivers, I guess. So yeah. it's similar. Absolutely. And so, yeah, so Bridget Jones is number one because also it's got a very special place in my heart because it's, it's a film that my best friend Amy and I, we quote every we really like we watched it together for the first time last year like having both watched it a million times separately and we're always quoting bits to each other from it and we realized that basically every line of the film is a quote that we say to each other at least once a week probably like i didn't realize i mean i i, I got the impression that this was a f- favorite film of yours i had no idea how deep it went i know so, i was so thinking it, i bet you don't even know because i don't think i've ever talked to you i i try and talk to you about french new wave and pretentious not sorry not pretentious but <laughs> Ooh, what a giveaway <laughs> no <laughs> no i know but you I know, know what exactly i mean what i try mean. and impress I know exactly you, what you mean. <laughs> with my with my cinematic uh taste and really underneath just scratch the surface a little way <laughs> and, <laughs> and you'll and find come a bunch of romantic comedies yeah basically yeah can i tell you my uh, my my history with Bridget Jones when I first watched Well, it. yeah, because that was my... Because I was... My first question is, did you see it when it came out in 2001 or was it a bit... Did you see it on DVD later? So in 2001, I was nine. So too young to see it in the cinema. But my mum saw it with friends and loved it, I believe. And, and maybe my dad as well. I don't know. But we had it on tape. And mm. so from... I'm not quite sure exactly what age, possibly nine, maybe slightly older. Whenever I was ill and take, having a day off school, I would watch three films. I would watch Bridget Jones' Diary, Notting Hill, and Pretty Woman. They were all 15, so I wasn't allowed to watch them. And I would be lying on the sofa watching them with my with remote controls in both hands, one for the video recorder, one for the TV. Because every so often, my dad worked from home and his study was upstairs. And every so often, he'd come down and check on me. So I would hear his footsteps on the stairs. And I'd quickly pause the pause Bridget Jones and then change the channel onto like the news or something and just and lie there still. And he, <laughs> and he would come in and be like, hello, darling, how are you feeling? I'm like, oh, I'm okay. Yeah. And he goes, oh, okay. Bye. And go back upstairs. And I'd wait for, to hear the footsteps. And then I'd quickly change it back. So there's also this like, it, it makes me think of my dad. It Illicit. also makes me feel ang- anxious. <laughs> In case your dad busted, you're being corrupted by the uh, the influence of Bridget Jones's diary. And he's such a sweet man. That's the thing. He wouldn't even. I don't think anything would have even happened. He'd have just been like, "Oh, I don't know if you should be watching that," and that would be it. <laughs> but can I ask the same thing to you? Because I believe you haven't seen it before, right? No, I'd, I'd never seen it. I mean, uh, I think I mentioned in passing that I initially mistook Bridget Jones's diary for the Prozac Diaries or Prozac Nation <laughs> or somehow. <laughs> and then, then when I discovered it was actually not at all about somebody with a drug addiction, I thought Bridget Jones's diary was going to be some fucked up, like, dark, nasty 90s trip-hop soundtrack. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, this doesn't seem like my kind of film, I don't think. Oh, my God, James, I find that extraordinary because Bridget Jones obviously most of our listeners probably know that Bridget Jones diary is based on the book of the same name written mm. by Helen Fielding which started life as a column in the independent ah didn't realize that like, this is what I find amazing you were kind of, okay you weren't the target audience gender wise but you were like the age of someone perhaps who would be aware of this because this was like a huge 
cultural phenomenon. Women yeah. were obsessed with it. So I'm just, I assumed it must have been a choice. Like, oh no, that's not my kind of thing. That's for women. But you just didn't even know what it was. Just to clarify, I spent maybe a year or two under the misapprehension that it was this. <laughs> it was Prozac Nation was Bridget Jones's diary. They kind of got meshed in my head. Right. So, but, the, but then but once the, I re- the novel or the film? The novel, sorry. Oh, okay, the, novel. the novel. The novel, yeah. And, and, and yeah. so then I think when it was made into a film, I was seeing images of Renee Zellweger looking like Bridget Jones does in the <laughs> film. I was like, this doesn't track with my in my head. So then I, was, I, I, I then I realized, oh, it's a book and it's kind of like a rom-com thing. So then right. I clicked and thought, okay, doesn't it just never really quite clicked to me. I've, I've seen Four Weddings and a Few. By the way, interesting trilogy films you used to watch for comfort watchers. I'm curious as to what order you watch them in because the satisfying order for me will be Pretty Woman, Notting Hill. And then into Bridget Jones, just because then you've got uh, you've got um, Julia Roberts, then you've got Julia Roberts, Hugh Grant, and then Hugh Grant into Hell yeah. you know, it feels like Hell a- yeah, babe, you and I, we're one mind. That is absolutely <laughs> what I did. And that was also, <laughs> it, that just works with the tonally. <laughs> I think it, right. it, it works to go that way. Does it take you on a journey? Is it is like a narrative arc? Yeah. Good sequencing. Yeah, I don't know why. It just feels like the correct order to do things, I think, because of that tracking. I love the idea of because you seeing pop- Renee Zellweger in those trailers for the movie, being like, "Hmm, she doesn't seem like a drug addict," but I could be yeah, wrong. The, that you know, <laughs> it was it was along those lines. It's a comedy addiction film <laughs> <laughs> that seems was- to have romance in it too. Brilliant. But yeah, he, he definitely didn't seem like I was the demographic, and this was like 2001, so I was at film, oh my god, I was at film school at the time. So, okay, yeah, you know, so it makes we, sense. We had to see Christopher Nolan's Memento when it was on release in 2001. We did see Lord of the Rings, and I think that the least film school film we saw was the Harry Potter, the first couple of Harry Potter films we saw as a group as well. But, but that's what yeah, I Bridget was thinking Jones. when I was contemplating my relationship to Bridget Jones and thinking about the fact that while you were like watching... Jean-Luc Godard at film school and like, you know, really getting into the the highest mm, of high yes. cinema. <laughs> I was secretly watching <laughs> Bridget Jones. Covertly I'm watching. I'm feeling in- so seen as a 10-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> in case, uh, and I'm worried that your dad had bust you for the corrupting influence of Bridget Jones wanting to get a man for the new year. Exactly. <laughs> you can't have your head being infected with that nonsense, Lily. <laughs> Okay, so Bridget Jones. Uh, it was directed by Sharon Maguire, and mm. it was a collab. We both know this, Jones, right? It was written by Helen Fielding, Richard Curtis, and Andrew Davies. We had this very v- funny moment of talking about Bridget Jones in a previous episode where I was like, it was yeah. written by Helen Fielding. And James Googled him, was like, no, it's not. It's written by Richard Curtis. And I literally went berserk. I was like, <laughs> I was I was like, don't you tell I know Bridget Jones. I know it. I was like, they wrote it together. <laughs> because actually the goss is, I believe Helen Fielding and Richard Curtis went to Oxford together and they actually dated at yes. Oxford. They were kind of a power couple of that group. They, In fact, that included Rowan Atkinson as well. They all met there. That's how Richard Curtis and him started working together on Blackadder. So the interesting thing, there's lots of weird connective stuff with Bridget Jones and Pride and Prejudice. So Helen Fielding basically based the romantic plot of Bridget Jones on Pride and Prejudice. And when she was writing the book, Cleaver, the character of Cleaver, who's played by Hugh Grant, was slightly influenced by Hugh Grant because Helen Fielding is friends with Hugh Grant and he would say things like, you dirty bitch. (laughs) And she put that in the book. So it was kind of, he inspired her and then went on to like play the role. And then at the same time, while she was writing the novel, that was when there was all that fuss around Pride and Prejudice, the 1995 
BBC adaptation. And so, again, when she was writing Darcy, it was very much influenced by Colin Firth playing Darcy. Now, I haven't read the book, but in the book, is there actually the Darcy character described as looking like Colin Firth, or have I just misremembered that or picked something up? Or okay, I have to confess something: I have not actually read the book. I've (gasps) only seen the film, but I have actually asked for it for Christmas this year because I was thinking, (laughs) "What's wrong with me? I need to have the full picture." And I was reading recently um, Monica Heisey's new book, um, really, really good, actually. Um, I'm just like looked over there at my bedside table being like, did I get the name right? Yeah, yeah, really good actually. And it's clearly a child of Bridget Jones. It's so, so good. Brilliant book. Uh, so I was like, oh my God, I need to get the literature. I need to have the source material. But you I don't know, but I imagine to... so. She definitely said it was influenced by him. It's just something I read in passing years ago that the, the, the character in the book is described as looking like Colin Firth. So it's a meta kind of joke that Colin Firth got cast or a bit. But yeah. maybe I'm making that all out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's it's very true. And the kind of the additional link is that so when she came to write the screenplay, she asked Angie Davies to help with it, who wrote the screenplay for the 1995 Pride and Prejudice. Ah, right. That's the one person I didn't really know much about, and I wonder. So, so I wonder how the three, how much of the three of them wrote? Because I was watching the film, and there were occasional passages where I just felt like, uh, especially there's a few moments where uh, Bridget Jones has a little, I don't know about a soliloquy, a little monologue, mm. and I just thought mm, that feels like it could be Richard Curtis. And then there's other bits which don't feel like there's elements. This feels like a, a Richard Curtis film with a female lead, you know, as opposed to Four Weddings, where you got you Grant at the center of it. it yeah, it, it has a feeling of a slightly more feminized Richard Curtis movie, but I don't know how much he was involved. Did he do like a script doctoring pass at the end because he was mates with Helen Fielding or was he more involved with it? I'd imagine he'd be more involved than just doctoring because this was her first screenplay she ever wrote. I'm not sure she's she's written any others apart from Bridget Jones. And obviously he'd written quite a few by this point. It was quite well established doing that. But I don't know. That's all speculation on my part. But I like to think they were very much doing it together. Because you're right, I think what makes this film so, so good is that it's very much got that Richard Curtis characterization and sense of humor. But the thing I feel like is often missing from Richard Curtis films is that strong, (laughs) well-written women character <laughs> that's that i mean there are lots of interesting side characters but often the the, the sort of love interest is a bit like less yeah well drawn and in this i mean bridget jones is just such a perfectly formed character such a believe yeah, she's, so she's, infinitely believable that yeah because i went in with a bunch of preconceptions of what we we're going to see and that's the one thing that was a nice surprise that she was a well-rounded character i thought it could be she could have easily fallen into caricature and there's like a bit of caricature but it's a romantic comedy so that's everybody's a little bit caricatured it's a little bit of a fantasy but she mm. I, I like that she's not i it would have been easier i felt to have made her a little bit of a weaker slightly less confident character so it was nice that she did have confidence it was more that she was just a little socially awkward than she had a lack of confidence an excellent every woman performance by superstar renee zellweger and if you look at the deleted scenes that are on the dvd extras but you can also find them on youtube guys i'll add a link in some of those deleted scenes it is a bit more caricature or it's a bit some of the gags about her her thinking about her weight and so on like they go a bit almost too far and I too feel broad. like and apparently when the in the initial edit of the film it was a bit of a mess and really wasn't working at all and they basically did lots of work to restructure it which I find amazing oh, because great. it's it's 
it zips along and it fits together all so perfectly and there's no flab at all. But I think that was a big part of it was like making sure that there was, they dialed that back. So there it would, it was funny enough and big enough, but not so much that it moves like dips. It was too far a character. Yeah. You kind of had a peek behind the curtain with the DVD extras that uh, we've discussed in our episode about women editors in Hollywood. Yeah. Is that there's two kinds of editing. There's like shot to shot, like when do you cut to somebody's reaction when you cut to close ups. But then there's also the structural editing, which is the thing that you see the least or that you, when it's done well, like, yeah, I, I wouldn't have noticed that there were any big structural changes, but that kind of push and pull. I mean, even in my limited experience of directing dramas, and editing them, that's those conversations were happening all the time. How much is too much? How far do we push the fantasy element until it pulls you out of it? You have these conversations about the world of the film. So does this scene fit in the world of the film? And you start realizing, and especially for me as well, the hard thing was some of these scenes that I actually completely removed from my work were the motivating scenes that made me write the script. To me, these were the key scenes. And then in, in the process of editing, you're like, well, actually in the world of the film that we've created, yeah. they're too much. Or they're just not quite fitting right. So the same, the exact same process happened there. And yeah, it, it, I would certainly have not got the impression that there was any major structural changes. But that's the editing process. Yeah, you got to kill your darlings. Damn right, you damn right. And it, it hurts. Yes, you spend two weeks not killing your darlings. Then you're like, oh my god, this is time. It's slaughter time. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah, yeah. But let's talk about Renée Zellweger because. I honestly think she's amazing. And I think it was really this time of watching it with a critical eye, thinking about this podcast, that I really appreciated her her talent. But what were your yeah. th- tell me what your thoughts on her of her are. I I, I can't name the Renée Zellweger films that I've seen. I'm damn sure I have, but none come to mind. But Same. um <laughs> Chicago. Haven't seen. She was in Chicago. That's all I can think of her being in. The point is I wasn't overly familiar with her work as an actor, and uh, I was really impressed. I thought it was really well done. I remember reading at the time that she'd spent like a couple of weeks as research working in an office. Yes, at Picador Publishing House. She was a trainee publicist, so doing basically (laughs) the same job she does in the film. She nails it. She's got this every person kind of charm she's very relatable it's never a caricature it's it's just right pitch, pitch perfect and that accent i mean she's from texas it's amazing because yeah. i really do believe on the for the most part americans cannot do british accents it always sounds really put on and over yeah, no, the top it's, it's and, good and she there are a few moments where it seems it's like a bit it goes a bit too plummy but it just works with who she is. Out of all these kind of films that we've watched so far on the podcast, I was thinking, is this the Citizen Kane of the kind of this kind of naughty romantic comedy? It's all it all comes together very nicely. Definitely. Definitely, James. I'm so glad you <laughs> yeah. think that though. I was worried. I wanted to ask you about your thoughts sort of from a cinema point of view. Like from a director yeah like all that stuff <laughs> like, from, from, from <laughs> you know what from I an mean. all that stuff point, yeah <laughs> from an all that stuff point of view i really liked it i thought especially the production design and the costumes mm. both of those were exceptional the cinematography and the sets like it made me realize how much we don't make these kind of films anymore which was it clearly had a decent budget because for what is essentially a drama set in the contemporary real world they've built lots of sets the mm. sets have lots of space in them they're built on multiple planes of action so you have a foreground in the offices for example you have foreground 
and then you'll have mid-ground where the action's taking place, the dialogue. Then there's a far background, and then there's stuff outside the window. So you've got multiplanar action, and most scenes are in a set of that kind of size. Even and I mean, if, if we're going to go for reality, then Bridget Jones's flat is like the most luxurious, spacious-looking flat, but it, it, it looks amazing. And in the fantasy of the world, that's the kind of flat we would fantasize about having if we were working in London. Definitely. So it, 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 it works in the fantasy. For me, it's, it's got this, um, we call it high-key lighting. So everybody's faces are very glamorous. They're all quite soft-lit. It's an excellent version of high-key lighting with big sets. My preference is for more, slightly more contrasty, low-key lighting. For these kind of romantic comedies, you want everyone looking beautiful. But yeah, it's all flawlessly executed. Great uh, direction. I think they make use of the cinematic space. The story rattles along. It's a, a very well-made version of this kind of story. <laughs> I think you're right. I think it is definitely the Citizen Kane. And that makes me so happy. I'm glad you appreciate it from a visual point of view. Oh, from, from a direct, how it's put together. Yeah, aesthetic, absolutely very impressive. But it does make me sad that you realise these kind of films just aren't made anymore. You wouldn't spend that much money making, because it's contemporary set nowadays, you'd probably film in an office. You'd probably film in a real flat that you'd adapt and you'd change. Because they built everything, even the interior houses are built sets. Everything's perfect. Mm. Everything's nicely put together. There's enough space to light everything, to put the cameras in the best places. And that just that helps make a film feel like cinema. And nowadays, that kind of romantic comedy set, the real world, you, you just wouldn't have that amount of money put behind it. Yeah, it's very true. I think it's very interesting that this film came out in 2001, April 2001. And it really does feel like one of the last hurrahs before the world before the western world changed before 9-11 and film took a, a distinct turn and there were a lot there were rom-coms that came out in the years after that but I feel like it really does capture a moment in a London moment in and time. UK it's very Blairite in its vibes you know like nothing to worry about I have this amazing <laughs> flat and borough I can like fall out of a black cab drunk every night I mean imagine taking a black cab on a weeknight it's just it's such a, and even like with her friend, like setting up, he's putting a, a phone cover on a new phone, and the box is on the on on their bar at they're at a bar, and he's got all the kit up. I love these little details that really make yeah, it specific to it. that time, that <laughs> when there was so much and, and, uh, joy in, and for women, I think it was a very important time. But we'll get into that. What, sorry, what were you going to say? No, yeah, I, I, I was also saying there's a bunch of things I noticed from watching it. I mean, well, one, excellent use of uh, needle drops uh, oh uh, music throughout. Fabulous soundtrack. I also have this on CD. I've listened many times. It's, co it's completely on the nose. Like every music choice is, lit is the most literal evocation of what's happening on screen. However, they are all bangers. Can't deny it. They're, like when they kick in, you're like, oh, that, that's, that's the, the, the perfect song for that moment. And also, because it's 2001, you've got some uh, original UK garage bangers popping in now and again, which is which I wasn't expecting that. That was quite a, you know, you've got some like 60s classics, Ain't No Mountain High Enough and all that kind of stuff. But then you've got some, you know, some well-chosen, they've aged quite well UK garage bangers. So, yeah. Unless we forget Jerry Halliwell's rendition of It's Raining Men. What oh, is it Jerry's version? Jerry's right? version, her fourth number one, I think. She has a lot to thank Bridget Jones for. That sort of kept her current. Blimey. <laughs> okay, I think we should talk about the men in the film because, yes, it's a rom-com. It's a who's she going to pick kind of situation. First with Hugh yeah. Grant. And I 
I love Hugh Grant in this role because it's quite clear if you just like hear a snippet of interview with him about this film that this is the character of Cleaver is the closest to his real personality of any part he's ever played. <laughs> and having spent really? many years playing these like very foppish, nice boys, <laughs> I think he was very pleased to get to play <laughs> himself and Arthur. Is- yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I thought it was a great performance because, you know, I, I know him more from the Four Weddings and the Funeral. However, I do love him in Cloud Atlas, which is a completely underrated gem. And I think maybe that's a one for the pod for us to discuss in that he plays seven different arseholes. It, it's Wait, set in multiple assholes. No. Well, as in people. dickhead characters. <laughs> you know, riffs on okay. the unpleasant character set in different multiple realities in different time periods. And the one consistent thing in all of these different stories is Hugh Grant pops up in some form of a toxic male, and it's great. In in fact, in one of them, he's even a flesh-eating cannibal. Cloud Atlas is so good. So, yeah, I, I figured when I watched Bridget Jones' Diaries that this is – there must have been nobody else they had in mind for that role because I can't imagine anyone else. He's got the kind of – Sleazy, but he's also very likable. He's able to just make it charming, but kind of... And sexy ugh. as hell. I think him and Renee Zellweger have amazing chemistry. That's yeah. the big knicker scene, honestly. I think it's like an incredibly sexy scene, even up to and even including <laughs> them laughing about her big knickers. Like, I, lo- I love it. I think it's perfect casting. And then on top of that, we've got Colin Firth. I think I love them two being... Yeah, they're great love love rivals. Yeah, the love fight rivals. sequence it works really well, it, especially because they're two really good actors going at it. So it's not just like a a fight sequence; it's funny and they sell it really well. Apparently, in the original draft of the script, the plan was it was meant to be sexy, like a sexy fight. Like they would rip their shirts or whatever, <laughs> and then they'd all be like, "Woo, oh, amazing!" Right. And Colin right. was like, mm, "I don't." I don't think I can do, I don't think that's realistic. And it was Hugh Grant's idea that they should fight really badly and just like awkwardly, just how oh, they yeah, genuinely yeah. would fight. Get rid of the st- the uh, the choreographer and just go for this yeah. awkward, <laughs> awkward thing. It's so good. That really makes it. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. I think that is what makes the film so rich and so good is that all the characters around Bridget are so, so so well drawn i feel like i use that phrase all the time but it's definitely true for this one i mean one of her friends shazza is actually based on the director on sharon mcguire she's a oh, friend is that sally phillips um yes sally phillips character yeah, yeah she's always actually... good to see sally phillips in something i always think she's great yeah she's fantastic and yeah so the director is actually also a friend of helen fielding's again uh-huh. more interconnected and she's the one who's always swearing <laughs> and watching this made me realize that the joke kind of the self-referential joke in the casting of i've forgotten the actor's name but the woman who plays one of her friends who's also in the harry potter films as moaning myrtle and so the first yes. time we see her in bridget jones she's in tears in a in bathroom. bathroom and of course know, and of course in boys. harry potter I was, like, I was like oh no in harry potter that there's there's a deliberate reason why they cast her and she's right got it now well that's what i was wondering do you think that was the deliberate reason to make that joke for the uh, yeah mums in the audience, the millennials in the audience. Oh, oh, right, yeah. Which way around was it? Which came first? Or may- maybe it was just pure coincidence because Bridget Jones came out in 2001 and didn't the first Harry Potter film or the second one because Moaning Myrtle's in number two. Didn't they come out around the same time? So, Oh, yeah. 
Oh, I don't weird, know. It could, it I, could be just one of those weird coincidences, but I, I thought it would be Bridget Jones's first and then, but, then yeah, Harry Yeah, Potter. no, that's what I thought too. But I did genuinely wonder if, I mean, because she's she's very good at as moaning Myrtle. But I know when you first mm. hear that voice and see her in the toilet, I'm like, am I in the right film? <laughs> <laughs> so, and also the the creepy non-uncle who keeps groping Bridget Jones's yeah, bottom. Yeah, James Faulkner. Yeah, play, yeah he, Uncle he Jeffrey. Pops up, he, he pops up as a villain in Doctor Who wearing the same moustache. Clearly, Russell T. Davis was trying to invoke the memory of that character because obviously he plays a villain in Doctor Who. So, right, like, right, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't realize the connection there. Yeah. I mean, such a good cast. Celia Imrie playing Una, his Great her, her yeah. mum's best friend, and Jim Broadbent and Gemma Jones playing Bridget's parents. That That's what I love is the. Um, it's first of all her relationship with her dad. That feels that them being really close, that their easy kind of camaraderie when they're at these like family like friend events and also just those the fact that there are like a quite there are three different scenes of them being at parties with friends of her parents mm. and that kind of extended world of like your mum's friends when you're a grown-up like yeah that fake feels, aunties and fake uncles yeah, yeah, yeah that all feels so so a truism of Britain, the way that that's put together, those people feel very real and just so, so funny. And yeah, I just, I don't know. It's just so well observed, I think. And I think that's probably why I stayed away from it because <laughs> I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been able to verbalize it until maybe the past few years, but I think it's because it represents the majority of how society sees th how the world works, the idea is you want to find a partner and, mm -hmm. you know, you want it, you want it. This is how it works and these are how your friends are. You don't have any, for example, I saw this. Was, there was no platonic male friends of Bridget Jones. It's essaying in a world that I always felt I didn't quite fit in or I always sure. felt a bit of an outsider to. So I suppose I, I could enjoy it and I, I love it as a film, but I don't think it's an aspirational world that I feel like I'd want to fit into. It's come on, Bridget. You can have both. Date both of them, man. <laughs> no, yeah, Daniel Kuhn you know, is such you, an you, arsehole. She doesn't want him. But I know what you mean. <laughs> I know what you mean. But I think, yeah. I uh, let's see. So, okay. So it's the twenty-year anniversary of this film um, mm. coming out. Um, so, in fact, I'm going to go see it at the cinema next week with the previously mentioned Amy. Oh, um, really? Oh, how great! <laughs> I know. I've never seen it in the cinema. So, I'm, are you going in London or going? Yeah, in London. Home? Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, Prince Charles? At Curzon. My oh, favorite fancy. Curzon. Yeah, I know. <laughs> fancy. Uh, yeah, I think it's at the Mayfair one. It's going to be super fancy, the OG. Anyway, so yeah, actually, if anyone, they're screening it on the 30th and the 1st, if anyone wants to come along, I'll see you there. So because of its this anniversary, and it's also 25 years since the book came out, so it's like a double anniversary for, for this story. And there was a New York Times piece about Bridget Jones basically saying like, why she's not relevant to Gen X's and how like we deserve better than Bridget Jones. It was quite a searing piece. It, it's it called it dated, which obviously it is. It's from twenty years ago, but also anti-feminist, yeah, which I was like quite incensed by. She talks about how women today know that being neurotic isn't cute. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't think Bridget Jones thinks she's being adorable when she's being neurotic. She is just responding to the world that she is living in. And I think the thing about this film is that, and I'm sure the book is that, in a very funny, fun, frothy way, it's actually reflecting some quite unpleasant aspects of being a woman 
in that time. Like the fact that her relationship with Daniel Cleaver, who's her boss, it, ba- it starts with workplace harassment, sexual harassment. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah and yeah, you mentioned the uncle, Uncle Jeffrey, and how every time he sees her, she he tries to pinch her bum. In every space, she endures some kind of like almost everyday harassment. And I think the way showing that and showing how it's actually, for most women, these sorts of things you just had to get on with. I think it was actually really important for that to be shown in a film at that time because it's thanks to those sorts of things actually being like shown that it beget, we, it began us moving to a place which we're not even, we haven't even arrived at the destination yet. We're still getting there, but we've it's, still getting there, it's yeah. contributed to us being able to say or call these things out of work and, and assert a boundary. But it, you need to get to that point first by so this, just showing this, you, it. you feel that this was a the start of the journey or somewhere on the journey yeah absolutely and they, so much has been made of, of it's so terrible that Bridget Jones talks all the time about like wanting to diet and needing to lose weight and yeah like the numbers are shocking like she's like 10 stone <laughs> she, she looks fine she, she doesn't need to lose nothing well yeah I, she's the same weight as me I'm nearly the same age as her at this point. She has. Oh, a, really? Yeah, my first. Amy actually sent me in a, a meme the other day where it was like Bridget Jones is like ten stone, has her own flat in Borough, and is a single thirty-year-old, and she and has a job in publishing, and apparently she's like a failure. Like it is ridiculous. But what this film isn't saying is that is a, those are objectively things to be to feel bad about. But it's it's saying that in this. In this world, women are made to feel bad about that stuff, and so they do. It's just reflecting back what ha- how women actually felt, which hadn't really ever been voiced before in such a frank but also funny way. I think that mm. was like an amazing thing to like have that reflected back to to women. So okay. I just it really annoys me to look back on that and be like, oh, like this is Bridget Jones. She's so neurotic. She's so like. Why does she care about dieting? It was like it was, that was fucking normal to care about dieting, and also yeah. it's not like we're any less neurotic now. We're just neurotic in different ways. Every film that's contemporary set is always going to be like a, a time capsule of either the the attitudes that were real at the time or the attitudes as perceived by the filmmakers. And here we have a female writer, female director, so they're reflecting how they see the world around them, which is kind of a, a bit of a shift from maybe if the film had been made ten years earlier, probably being a male director or a male writer. I mean apart from maybe Nora Ephron is the only person I can think of who was writing which, these yeah. kind of things. Which is yeah. definitely, I feel like that is the lineage. It's like Nora Ephron, Helen Fielding, and then and now today with yeah, these, these these sorts of books, like Monica Heisey's book I mentioned before, you can really see the kind of, the evolution of women's writing, well, of t- writing about at least a certain kind of woman, I guess. Talking about evolution, I was watching this film thinking, is this, is this Bridget Jones are like the noughties, remake of it girl i was thinking does it fit <laughs> kind of kind of no. not you know so, so it, it, this is the so, every oh, woman so, this is definitely not the it girl. Uh, but but the it girl remember was a shop worker the it girl wasn't a celebrity she wasn't anyone clever she had a lot of confidence and she had riz as you would call it but I found, because I was going into Bridget Jones as thinking that Bridget Jones perhaps wouldn't have charisma, but she does. It's just, it's evolved and changed. It's not as on the nose. You know, she is, she, she's the it girl, but with insecurities. That's how I saw it. And she is aspirational in her love interest. I mean, is a Colin Firth, is he a lawyer? Am I right in thinking? Yes. So, human you rights know, lawyer. he doesn't, yeah, human rights <laughs> lawyer. So it's evolved from, 
he owns the shop that she works in. It's now, he's a human rights lawyer. It's an aspirational partner that perhaps is slightly out of her reach, you might say, which in the it girl, the shop worker and the boss getting together. I don't know. I, I certainly felt that the lineage was there, even if I'm trying to struggle a little bit to make it fit. <laughs> yeah, what sorry, I, I guess so. I was think I was thinking more about the it girl as a concept. How no, no, the film. Come on, Lily. The film. From the, the film. film. From the film. Okay. Literally from the film. Yeah. Like the, the, yeah. the office worker is is that the modern is that like the slightly middle class riff on the um, shop worker? Yeah. I guess so. But the thing is, in, in It Girl, there seems to be a big class divide, right? And she mm. but, oh, yeah, but yeah. she has all this charisma, so she's able to hop basically to sure. kind of like rungs, I guess, if you want to break it down that way. Whereas I think with Bridget Jones, I think the class element of it is very much echoing Pride and Prejudice. As I said, it's influenced by that book. Both Hugh Grant and... And Colin first characters, both Daniel Cleaver and Mark Darcy, they went to Oxford together, I think, or Cambridge together. And you see the family home of Mark Darcy. So you see that he comes from clearly a lot of money and is very much like kind of an upper class world. But it seems to me like Bridget Jones, I did think about it because, you know, in some, she is, I guess, like a bit more aspirational than on the same level as them. But it seems like in, in that world that they, are moving in it's definitely not made a point that she is like she's moving up I don't think it feels to me like that is never an issue that she is she could have those guys from that point of view if she wanted to I think she does very much fit into this world in my opinion you know these are all her Mark Darcy's friend parents are friends of her parents they're all yeah yeah she her parents live in a big house in the Cotswolds and to be honest that to me is just Really what that is, is just the Pride and Prejudice of it. Because in Pride and Prejudice, Bingley is from a from like the highest like elite, but yet still he's very interested in Jane Bennett and does that's, it's not really a, a deep consideration. Like it's, they all end up with someone in the end because the yes, they're slightly like, I guess, lower down the pecking order, but not so much that it's a big problem. Okay. It's fairly negligible. Whereas in the It Girl, it's definitely, she needs to win him over and like get over this hurdle of being from a different world from them completely. Right. Whereas okay, Bridget Jones it definitely yeah. occupies this world in which everyone is kind of on this, they may be financially a bit, there might be some variation, but they're basically in the same privileged world, which I, is definitely perhaps a criticism of the film. I mean, it's definitely a fantasy <laughs> bubble of like, yeah, yeah posh london i guess and the surrounding posh white london yeah. Uh, yeah exactly yeah definitely very yeah very posh very white i feel like that's not the central point of it it's more for me it's more about it's more about a woman trying to like figure out what she what really will make her happy a man <laughs> a man Definitely a man. <laughs> but I think You don't need a goddamn man, Bridget. You're fine. Yeah, but You don't need a kid. But she, but, Stop putting pressure on her, society. Back off. But the thing is, those are the things she wants. But better for better or worse, most of us do want those things. So I think the idea that it's like it's, you know, anti feminist to show a woman who cares about her weight, cares, does oh, drink too much and regrets it does want to be in a relationship and often in quite dysfunctional ways like she definitely obviously sees aspiration in Daniel Cleaver it's quite weird to me from they've only been dating like a few days it seems and she's already asking him if he loves her and thinks, <laughs> and thinks she, he's her boyfriend like she is a bit she's a slightly that, un, 
that that that, 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 that what, I have to admit that yeah. that came out of slightly nowhere. I was thinking that doesn't feel quite. I don't know. Feels a bit soon for Bridget from the Bridget we've seen in the film. But you know, it's a drama. You got you got to do these things. Yeah, I know. You're right. You're right. For me as well, because I don't remember thinking that. I don't think I'd ever really clocked quite how quick she was. Because mm. to me, yeah, it was not nice that it definitely wasn't nice that he lied to her and then had another woman at home. But like, I don't think they were exclusive at that point. Like, I don't actually think didn't, it's didn't. that terrible. <laughs> like, I I would be yeah. upset too, but I don't really think you have a right to like. I don't know. Lie. The lying is not cool. The lying is not cool. They were definitely in the area of what I call the fog of monogamy. Those early, early <laughs> few weeks of monogamous dating the fog, where fog the phenomenon, yeah, we're on the mold wine already. <laughs> yeah. Those early precious few weeks of monogamous dating where you haven't had the conversation, so technically you could be seeing other people. It's kind of fine, but let's not say anything. But what I love about Bridget, so most women, right, in this situation, would be thinking. What are we? Are we headed somewhere? Are we serious? What's going on? She doesn't have that conversation. She's just like, no, no, he's my boyfriend. She's telling her dad, I've got a boyfriend, <laughs> asking him if he loves her. Are you kidding me? You've slept together twice. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> so she does have a slightly childlike, I guess, attitude to relationships. Where... She's been she's been conditioned by too many rom-coms. That's what Bridget Jones, she's yes. grown up watching too many. Yes, but that's the thing. That's what I love about this film is that is how most women yeah. are. Yeah, you yeah. Know, we have to kind of uncondition ourselves from that stuff. And maybe, hopefully not, it's probably getting better, but at least I certainly felt like I had to. So so I think it's not saying this is great. I think the comedy comes mm. to the fact that we know it's it's all it's it's kind of mad really <laughs> yeah it's a it's an imperfect system but it's basically the system that everyone's got yes yeah yeah and we're all laughing at it so it <laughs> feels good the other thing i really need to draw attention to is the salman rushdie cameo at the book oh, launch yeah yeah so watching it this time i think Sam rushdie is actually her guardian angel low-key because when she arrives and saw, like finds her way to his little circle and he's talking, he turns to her and says, what do you think? And I think, how nice that this man is genuinely interested in what this woman has to say. What a rare treat. Love that. It's unfortunate she didn't have any things to say, so just asked where the toilets were. But I love that he gave her the chance. And then later on, when she's feeling bummed out about how embarrassing her speech went, Mark Darcy turns around to look at her and you can just hear in the background that Natasha Mark's female squeeze who's really rude to Bridget says to Sam Rushdie so how autobiographical is your work and you can just like very vaguely hear him say oh you know what no one has ever asked me that and I think <laughs> yes Salmon shoot her down we hate this woman she's making Bridget feel bad okay do we have anything more to say of Bridget Jones I feel like I barely even I barely even scratched the surface, but <laughs> I just want to like encourage people to watch this film because the thing that is very pleasing to watch about it is that it has such that feeling of the kind of end of that Christmas New Year lull where yeah. you've overdone it, just like we were talking about at the start of the episode. You've overdone it. You're feeling a little bit bad about how much you've indulged, but you're also feeling the sense of like, okay, it's a new year. I'm going to make this year a really good one. What are my New Year's resolutions? You have all this intention. And then, 
as things go on, starts off strong and then immediately fails and then has a, an additional burst of energy and achieves something. Yeah, and then we it. all revert back to our same selves and we're back to square one, just like in the movie. Oh, yeah, and I love it. And she's, she's eating and she's drinking and she's they last minutes of resolutions. But yeah, that, yeah, that's, I think, everybody, isn't it? I love it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So it's the perfect film for, for the end of the year. And do do we not talk about the sequels? Or you we know, don't talk about the sequels. The... So. Right. <laughs> the second one is terrible. The second one is terrible. I've, I noticed I've... that it, it wasn't it wasn't the same director, but she comes back for the third one. And the third one is people generally agree pretty good. I didn't love it. It's definitely a mm. lot better than the second. But in my mind, just, I guess the first is perfect. Let's just leave it there. It's one of those things where I have not having seen the two sequels. I, essentially, to get the sequels to work, you have to upset the equilibrium where you had the ending of the first film that was picture perfect. And then you've got to manufacture something going wrong with that to get all the same cast back to give you that same kind of feeling of Bridget Jones, yeah, I guess. Exactly. And it's diminishing well, returns. Like with a lot of films, like, like with the Matrix sequels. God damn it. Yeah, that yeah, kind of thing. Absolutely. You know what? But you're right. It is a perfect ending because I love that bit where Mark Darcy just wraps his coat around her while they're snogging. It looks so cozy in there. I'm like, oh, I want to be there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, excellent. Well, <laughs> p- potentially we've re- part one of how many se- a part three se- three part series of a Bridget Jones discussion, maybe. Mm-hmm. I just can I just <laughs> thank you, James. Because I feel like <laughs> I think this se- series in particular, you've really allowed me to like lean into the things that I'm quite passionate about film wise. That's which, what I'm here for. Which That's is definitely exposing myself to be quite sort of lowbrow. But thank you yeah, well, for indulging me. Well, I well well I'm a Nolan film bro. It seems <laughs> we're, nah, we're, we're actually of... so heteronormative. It's embarrassing, but <laughs> hilarious, isn't it? Uh, but you know, but but also it means that when I play the let's go watch Tenet for card, <laughs> you know, I've I've earned my dues. I've got my I've got my little pass that I've got my stamps on. It's, Come on, Lily. It's so true. I do feel quite indebted. Yeah, yeah. So watch the space guys for next season. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. We were thinking to finish up the series, finish up the episode, um, because we're going to be taking a bit of a break. TBC on how long exactly that break will be. I mean, not crazy long, guys, don't worry. We'll be mm. back in your ears before, but like definitely in March at some point. Just figuring that yeah. out. But <laughs> and there's a bit of a gap between then and now. And also, the new year is like the best time to see films because it's when all the yeah. awards worthy, the awards contenders are released. So we figured we'd give you some hints and tips of things to look out for to keep you ticking over until we're back in the saddle. <laughs> exactly. So, James, would you like to kick us off? What are you excited about in January? 12th of January, I've got Poor Things, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos and shot by Robbie Ryan, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, Willem Dafoe. Yeah, and it seems to be like a modern steampunk riff on the Frankenstein story. So... Uh, I've seen Lobster, which I thought was good. I haven't seen the subsequent couple of films that he's done, but I think I'm definitely going to see this at the cinema. It looks interesting. The favourite was amazing, also with Emma Stone. So, so Mm, good. Also shot by Robbie Ryan, yeah. Mm. And yeah, I think it looks amazing. I can't wait for four things. That's going to be good. As I was researching, this is just something that caught my eye, which is interesting, which is The Book of Clarence coming out 19th January. I haven't heard of that. It's a comedy... It's set in 29 AD, and it's about a guy who decides to cash in 
on the idea that this Jesus Christ character is a Messiah. So he sets himself up in biblical era Jerusalem as another Messiah, <laughs> Clarence. And it's a majority black cast. We've got David Oyelowo in it. We've got a Marianne Jean-Baptiste. We've also got um, James McAvoy playing Pontius Pilate and Benedict Cumberbatch. It doesn't tell you what his character is. Possibly he's going to play God. I don't know. But it looks really interesting. The cinematographer is Rob Hardy. Very good cinematographer did the Mission Impossible film. So it looks quite good. And the trailer looked okay. But, but I don't know much about life it. of... Life of... Life of Brian. Thank you. Yeah. I was possibly. like, what, what's your name, is it? Someone's life. Some man's life. Yeah. <laughs> Someone's life. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, but certainly, it's, it's only just the cast and mm. the cinematographer. Is, it looks like it's something of quality, so interesting. Oh, yeah. What about yourself? What about, what about your January picks? I have many things I'm excited about for in January, so I'll <laughs> rattle through them as quickly as I can. Um, on the oh, sorry, quickly, sorry. December 26th, which is not quite January, Ferrari, the new Michael Mann. Got to see a Michael Mann film at the cinema. Now I've been getting into him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm super excited to see that. Can't wait to see that. In fact, there are a few films. I haven't seen Maestro yet, Bradley Cooper's film. <laughs> which He's not my favorite man in the world, but actor in the world, I should say. But Harry Mulligan's performance is apparently incredible. So I definitely want to see that. And also Priscilla comes out on the 1st of January which I think I've mentioned before, Sophia Coppola's new movie about Priscilla Presley. Cannot wait to see mm, that. That good. And Jacob Elordi playing Elvis, excited for that. Though apparently he's not yeah. as sexy as in Saltburn, which is unfortunate, but hey, can't have it all. So <laughs> besides those, I am really excited to see One Life. That comes out on the 5th of January. That is the biopic about Nicholas Winton, who was the man who organized the kinder transport. He oh, wow. Did not... 669 children from the Nazis in, in Czechoslovakia. And I have to say that I saw the trailer. I've seen it twice and I've cried both times. I don't know if that's just me emotional, but I mean, God, that story is just gets me every time. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing that. Though I do think that it's directed by James Hawes, who's a TV director. And I do think these sorts yeah. of films, these kind of Oscar-worthy British films are often a bit televisual, so I'm not sure if it's going to be like the most amazing viewing experience, but I just, that story, you know, I can't wait to see Well, it. I would like to say J James Hawes, I know his work from when he was a director on Doctor Who. He was one of the more clearly cinematic directors oh, okay. of the TV series. I'm sure it will translate uh, his film work. So yeah, okay. I'd be intrigued to see what it's like. Okay, cool. Okay, fine. Sorry. I take that back, James Horse. I bet it's going to be amazing. <laughs> You've already made me cry, so I'm sure it's going to be great. And I, I think I did mention this before, but I want to say again, Ava DuVernay's new film, Origin. It's a movie based on this nonfiction book called Cast the Origins of Our Discontents by Isabel Wilkinson. And I thought that it, it was going to be a kind of a nonfiction because this book is a non-fiction book. So I thought it was going to be a similar kind of documentary thing, maybe akin to 13th, her other documentary. But actually, it's like a, it's a biographical drama. And apparently the story is of Isabel Wilkerson as she's her experience of writing the novel. So kind of meta. So I'm excited about that, okay. like especially because I saw the trailer and it doesn't really tell you anything. It feels powerful and moving. I felt moved watching it, but I don't know what's going on. So I'm excited about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then the other film in January I'm very excited for is All of Us Strangers. That comes out on the 26th of January. And it is a film starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott and Claire Foy as well. 
and it's directed by Andrew Hay, who made the film Weekend, if you've seen that. And it's basically a love story. Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott fall in love whilst Andrew Scott's kind of struggling with, I think he revisits home, something to do with some kind of past family trauma. There's loads of buzz around it that it's already been nominated okay. for, Oscar, for Oscars, for awards. Never heard of that one. It sounds interesting. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think it looks great. I've got one, and again, which I hadn't heard of until I was researching for this, was is called American Fiction, which is coming out on February the 2nd in the UK, which is, uh, when you look into it, it's got a lot of buzz around it. Jeffrey Wright plays an author who, his books aren't very successful. He's a black author, and he, he's clearly like a middle-class author, I guess like a maybe a Salman Rushdie type, and his books just aren't selling. And his, his publisher says, we need an, a book from you that's really black. And so as a joke, he writes like the most ridiculous parody kind of black novel full of street slang and stuff like that, and it sells shitloads. <laughs> and he then has to pretend that he's a streetwise kind of quasi-gangster-esque character with a bad life, when in fact that's far from the truth. And so just from the trailer, it, it looks like a good comedy that's got something to say. Yeah. And it's a, and it's a debut film. It's a writer-director called Cord Jefferson, and it's their debut film. So I'm always intrigued to see a debut film that's got a lot of buzz about it. Yeah, yeah. I also saw the trailer for that, and it looked genuinely really funny, which I feel like is exactly what you want for something that's like a satire that it has a very important message at the heart. Like, that's mm. like the... That's what you need. And also, yeah, an, an amazing cast. Tracy Ellis Ross and Issa Rae are also in it, so... Looks brilliant. I can't wait for that. And then the other, <laughs> the film I'm, I, my site says, hmm, but it's got Mads <laughs> Mikkelsen in it. So I'm really excited about that. Is The Promised Land coming out on the 16th of February? It's a Danish oh, I don't know. film. About that. It's directed by Nikolaj Arcel. I hope I pronounced that correctly. And it's a historical drama. The variety is described it as a commoner turned captain locked in a grisly land battle with a dastardly nobleman. <laughs> and I've also seen it <laughs> wow. described as like a, a Jutland, Jutland Nordic Western. I mean, uh, I saw the trailer and it looks really beautiful, like a proper epic. I okay. wonder if it could be perhaps a bit boring, but. It's Mads Mikkelsen, the sexiest man in all Scandinavia, possibly the whole cinema. So <laughs> I can't wait for it. I don't know how hard and fast our rule of when our cutoff point is for recommendations because I've got a bit of a blank in February, but I've got I, I pick up again in like later March. Hit me with it. What have you got? What are we excited okay. for in March? Well, I, I, in March, I'm very much looking forward to Mickey 17, the uh, latest film by Bong Joon-ho. Ah. Um, and it's shot by my all-time, well, not I don't know, my all-time, but one of my all-time favorite living cinematographers, Darius Konji, the mastermind behind the visuals on Seven. It's a science fiction film starring Robert Pattinson, who plays a replicant, a, like a synthetic humanoid character, an expendable employee on a human expedition sent to colonize an ice world. And he dies, and he gets a new body's created with most of his memories intact. Sounds like a fascinating premise, you <laughs> oh know. My God. So, yeah, that sounds my kind of thing. Yeah, that's like heavy on the premise. <laughs> yeah, I'm up this for seeing Jun it. Oh, come on, it's, it's the parasite guy with yeah, yeah, Darius yeah, yeah. Conji yeah, doing yeah, the visuals. Yeah. Come on, yeah, 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 yeah. That for that alone, I'm I'm up for it. I'm uh, up for it. And we've we've got Stephen Yen, and we've got uh, Tony Collette and Mark Ruffalo in oh, the wow. cast as well. Oh my God! Yeah, so amazing cast. Okay, cool. All right, let's see that. We'll probably be back by then so we can maybe see it for mm. the podcast. Um, and I say that because we're, yes, tentative for when we're coming back because our plan had been that we would return for June too. That is for both of us, our most, I, 
that's right, right? Our most hotly anticipated <laughs> yeah, movie. Absolutely. And we were like devastated that it got pushed back from November because of the writer's strikes and then got pushed back to the 15th of March. Now it's been brought, brought forward slightly to the 1st of March. So <laughs> God damn. it's all chaos around June 2, but that is the big film that I cannot wait to see. Yeah, I went to see Godzilla Minus One last Friday at the IMAX, which, by the way, very entertaining movie. If you're in the market for a human interest drama set in post-war Japan about a kamikaze pilot who decides to bottle it and not carry out his mission and he's socially excluded because he's essentially seen as a coward and about all the different stories about the characters struggling to survive in post-war Japan, and then a big monster comes and stamps through the city intermittently, <laughs> then this is the film for you. I've never seen a Godzilla movie before, and I bloody loved it. It had a round of applause when the credits came on because everyone was so into the film, but they had a trailer for Dune 2, and it was the full-height like IMAX trailer because we've got a proper IMAX at the view, and it was mind-blowing. Some of the sequences in Dune 2 look, ex look incredible, so I'm very excited. <laughs> I have to say, this Godzilla movie, I've not seen it. Mm. I advertised anywhere you're the only person who's told me anything about it i've not seen it online i've not seen trailers what's going on with it so it only has come onto my radar because the some of the youtubers that i watch especially corridor crew they've raved about it so yeah i haven't picked up on it through any of the usual so channels weird. this is more this is more it's more like a because they, uh, I think, Lily, to be honest, they haven't spent a lot of money marketing it. The thing that blows my mind is it costs $15 million to make, and it looks like a properly big-budget Hollywood movie. So they know how to make films economically. So it doesn't need to make a lot of money to make a profit. And it's already made like $40, 50000000 million. So they're already banging the money. Oh, wow. And they haven't okay. had to spend a lot... You haven't seen it on the side of buses because that costs money. It's like a more a viral marketing campaign. So it's the first time where I've really seen a film where it was more marketed by my peers, by them all saying, this is a great film, really good. So, yeah, that, that's how it came on my radar. Interesting. Okay, well, yeah, I think I might give that a watch, actually. I've never seen a Godzilla movie. Afterwards, I um, bumped into a friend who was with one of his mates who's a Godzilla aficionado and has seen all of them. And he said, that's the best one by far. So, okay. so All right. I guess if you're only, if you're only ever going to watch one Japanese Godzilla film, I think this is the one. <laughs> okay, out of, yeah. Out of, out of the 37 or 33 films oh, they've made over okay, 70 fine. fucking Sorry, years. Sorry, I didn't know that. Okay, yeah, makes sense. Yeah. All right, that's the one. Yeah. All right, cool. Yeah, I'm going to see that. Okay, <laughs> so this brings us to the end of the episode. And mm. James, I have a surprise for you and the listeners. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, don't worry. It's nothing to be alarmed by. It's nice. It's a good thing. Basically. Hooray. <laughs> seeing as I think one of the struggles of this series for us, this podcast has been pronunciation of names. I feel like we were like, we were really trying very hard just now <laughs> with all those names. And I think, I think we just about got away with it. But with that in mind, I thought, it would only be fitting to put together a little bloopers reel. Okay. <laughs> okay. So to finish up, to, to tie up the series in a nice little bow, <laughs> here is a bloopers reel of Groovy Movies. Christos Nikau, Niku, Nikau, Nikau. This is the podcast you come to if you want to have names of filmmakers mispronounced. With Harvey Keitel. E even? Even? Even. Louise. <laughs> Louis Brunel? I looked it up. It's a Brunel. 
I think. Rob Rayner. Rob Rayner. Rob Rayner. Rob Rayner's like Rob Rayner. Rob Rayner. Rob Rayner, obviously the director. Rob Rayner. Rob Rayner. Denise Gamze Ergven. By Jonathan Dan. Jacqueline Phoenix. Jacqueline Phoenix. Jacob Elodie. Jacob Elodie. Who's played by Jean Paul Belmondo. Bel- Belmondo. Belmondo. And uh, Trey Bond. <laughs> Taylor Swift's era's movie. And that's another thing about the Taylor Swift's film, era's films. She did the all too much video about the souffle. Such as the Kayak. 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 Thank you. Kayak. Hey, oh, Kayak. Sorry to our French listeners. We're sorry to any Turkish listeners. So apologies to our Greek listeners. Apologies to anyone. Apologies, as, we as always. Because apparently, like, Yaquin Phoenix. Oh, my, damn <laughs> Wacky. It. Just say Wacky. Wacky. Wacky Phoenix. We're talking about a filmmaker, and they mentioned his oeuvre. And it's like, hang on, oeuvre? What the fuck's... No, have we been said oeuvre? Is that the wrong thing to say? Really? I don't know. It's not oeuvre. Oeuvre. It's not oeuvre. That's what the Radio 4 man said, and it's Radio 4. I thought you were trying to tell me that it's okay because other people get it wrong. People on Radio 4 get it wrong. Oh, my God. Is it, ooh, shit. I don't know. <laughs> I know it's Christos Niku, who, uh, Nikau, Niku, who directed this. He's Greek, so don't know what that tells us. <laughs> <laughs> That was hilarious. I was hoping we could kind of sweep under the carpet. Uh, goddamn awful at times pronunciation. But there it is foreground and front and centre. Merry Christmas, everybody. Happy New Year. Well, the, the thing was, I, I also wanted to just sweep it under the carpet. But then I listened back to our Taylor Swift episode. And not only did I misname the title of the show the whole way through, but also I I called one of my one of my favourite songs with her All Too Well. I called it All Too Much. It seemed to be some kind oh. of subliminal message or something. But so I was just so I mortified. Know. I was like, I've got to make a mer- virtue of these horrible mistakes. Right. We've got to just own it, lean in, because James, what else can you're we just, do? You've just, you just got to throw us both under the bus. <laughs> um, so, I'm so, hoping it won't how, how people to us, I hope. I mean, we'll find out. We'll sort find of, so out. wait, wait, wait. So how did you mispronounce Taylor Swift's Eras tour? I just kept calling it her era's movie, her era's film, Taylor Swift's oh, movie. Oh, right, like, just right. Just like slightly, because it's, oh, I, I see, mean, because it's called Taylor Swift's era's tour. That is not a great title for a film. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's what I, that's my excuse. Ah, I wouldn't want to be pedantic and call you up on nonsense like that. It's just like, we just talking, we're grooving. Like, you know, it's the film's called It, Not It, Girl. I'm not going to pause the podcast Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> see? <laughs> so many bloody mistakes. But yeah. <laughs> Guys, I hope you enjoyed that. That was just a little treat for you and for James to atone oh, was, for our was, sins. <laughs> that felt very festive. That must have been a lot of work, Lily. Thank you. That was lovely. Oh, you're welcome. Okay, well, guys, have a lovely new year. Hope you enjoy the rest of the Christmas break. And if you can just remember in the middle of being off your box on Bailey's <laughs> to just leave us a like. Little review all helps get the podcast out to a wider audience, and Absolutely. we love it. Yeah, if you've enjoyed what we're doing and you want to give us a Christmas present, just like five stars and maybe some <laughs> nice words about how much you love all our mistakes would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and yeah, thank you very much. Thank you so much, guys. And yeah, we, we don't know when we're going to be back, but not too long. We'll be back before you know it. So just keep stay subscribed, and and we'll be back in your ears. Yeah, keep. <laughs> 
Keep your ears open for our return. Okay. All the best and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Bye. Follow us on Instagram at GroovyMoviesPod or email us GroovyMoviesPod at gmail.com. Groovy Movies was produced and edited by Lily Austin. Music and sound by James Brailsford. Our logo was designed by Abby Joe Sheldon. For references and more information about the films discussed, check out the show notes.